half of my congregation is white, so <laughs> it was my pleasure to, to speak authoritatively into your white humanity. <laughs> um, uh, I, have, um, I have one leader who is a, a Stanford PhD, a tenured MIT professor, African-American, uh, teaching mechanical engineering. Don't have many of those. Uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, scientist. And I remember when he first uh, came to our, our church, I asked him, you know, why are you here? Uh, because we're probably about 6 to 7% of the third culture. That will be uh, neither uh, Pan-Asian, that's one of every kind of Asian, and then uh, white Anglo, and then, although I can't say Anglo anymore because I've got a bunch of Germanic people who come to, can you, say, can you not say Anglo? Okay, because we're white Germanic. Okay, all right, so white Caucasian, and, and then uh, 6 to 7% of the third culture. And I asked him, I said, why? Uh, why are you here? And, and he said, um, because you're not white. And I understood, at that moment, I understood what he was saying. Even though I'm not black, even though I'm not African-American, uh, he knew that we would be able to empathize with one another because we were both um, minorities or people who grew up in subdominant cultures uh, who lived in predominantly uh, uh, dominant uh, racial cultures. And so, you know, this is kind of, again, as I get into some of the things that I like to present, uh, I think this is uh, the beauty of what it means to be able to engage a culture and to be able to bring all of our respective differences and to be able to understand what a robust biblical theological vision of the gospel will do in shaping every dimension of life and ministry uh, for all of us. And, um, and that is what we're going to uh, try to do. I'd like to thank those who have uh, invited me. Uh, just, just a historical connection for those of you who are history buffs. Uh, Lexington uh, was named after Lexington, Massachusetts. Okay? I'm not just saying this because I'm a homer and, and we're the city of champions, uh, at least with uh, <laughs> athletic sports. Uh, I don't think there's any debate now who the GOAT is, but... Um, <laughs> I'm a typical insufferable uh, Boston sports fan. Um, but but uh, when, uh, what's his name? William McConnell in 1775 uh, came into this uh, region, into this uh, area, along with his friends. Uh, he named it Lexington uh, after uh, Lexington, Massachusetts, because the Battle of uh, Lexington and Concord had just happened like several months prior to their arrival. And the connection with Lexington, with Lexington, Massachusetts, is one connection. But another connection is with me because I live in a city, urban, a Boston urban neighborhood called Charlestown. And Charlestown is where you have uh, the Bunker Hill Monument. And if you recall your history, uh, after uh, we won the us, Americans, we, we won uh, the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Uh, they, the, the British soldiers retreated back to Boston. There was a siege of Boston, and then we had that very famous uh, battle uh, at Bunker Hill, which, if you are familiar, uh, didn't happen on that hill. It actually happened on another hill about 200 meters away uh, called Breed's Hill. But anyways, the point is, is that there's a connection that I have with all of you with Lexington because I'm from Charlestown. Okay, uh, second thing I want to say is, um, I want to uh, thank Robert. I had a, the privilege of uh, hearing his uh, talk uh, last night. I thought it was a wonderful uh, presentation. Uh, I thought it was winsome, articulate, thoughtful. And I was, and I was listening to this uh, uh, at the airport today coming over here, and I said, they should have just invited him to be the guest speaker, you know? <laughs> so what am, I, what am I doing here? Um, but then I thought to myself, I said, well, he kind of, he was the starting pitcher, right? And then he's also going to be closing it out, I guess, on Sunday. And I'm kind of like middle relief, right? Something in the middle, if you, if you can follow the baseball analogy. Um, the middle relievers, you know, they're not that important. They just have to make sure they don't blow the game. So if the starting <laughs> pitcher, you know, has the, the game in hand, you know, he's going to get a W, he's going to get a win, and then he'll close it out the same Starting pitcher is going to close it out and he'll get a save. But the middle reliever, you know, there's no stat line. We just get a hold. 
That just means that we just can't blow uh, uh, the wonderful uh, starting uh, job that Robert has done. So that's one of my goals uh, in the next couple of days. I also want to say that I am a trainer for uh, Redeemer City to City Global, which means that uh, a lot of the stuff that I do and use and train, the resources, the material, uh, the, uh, the talks that I give, this kind of comes from this big uh, a bundle of material uh, that we have uh, at our disposal through Redeemer City to City. A lot of it obviously connected to Tim Keller and to Center Church, which is his magnum opus. And so anyways, if you're interested in some of the material, please uh, feel free to uh, get your hands on it and get access uh, through one of our uh, delivery uh, systems or uh, learning labs. Okay, so that's my uh, introduction. Now, what am I trying to do tonight? I'm trying to, to talk about the theme of cultural engagement. Cultural engagement. And I know that some of you might have some reservation even about the idea of engaging our culture. So I understand that, and then hopefully we can walk through this together. Or even the, the, the word contextualization comes up, and, and all of a sudden you're saying, hey, we got to be careful. We got to make sure that we protect our biblical doctrine and the gospel and all that. We have to make sure that we don't over-assimilate to the culture and the world is secular and all of that, and all legitimate uh, concerns. Um, but the the question that we need to ask is not whether or not, uh, actually that's not a question, but uh, the, the issue is not whether or not we are going to engage our culture. The, the, the issue is not whether or not we will have our life or our Christian witness or our ministry, whether or not it's going to be contextualized. Everything that we do is contextualized. You might not acknowledge it or realize it. The question is whether it's good contextualization or it's poor contextualization. It's not as though that, that people can live, a Christian can live in a vacuum and say, you know what, I'm not going to engage the secular culture around me. That in and of itself is a posture of engagement or disengagement or a level of, of, of ignoring uh, what's out there. And so, so in order for us to have a robust vision for cultural engagement, we need to consider uh, three realities. So this is what we're going to try to cover tonight. The first is the cultural crisis of the church. We'll have to take a look at that. Secondly, we're going to look at the danger of a reductionistic definition of the gospel. And third reality is we're going to look at the symbolic capital of cities. Some of you might be familiar with that language. It's from Hunter, the symbolic capital that we have in our culture. Or to say it in a more simplistic way, we need to know our history, our theology, and our locality or just our uh, social location. So first is the cultural crisis of the church. You know that our world is, is extremely fragmented. But you might not be aware that our church is also extremely fragmented. Or evangelicalism, whatever that movement is about, is extremely fragmented. And we tend to think that when we evaluate the nature and the ministry of the church, that the reason why we have so much fragmentation or the reason why there are so many disputes is because of theological and doctrinal issues. And certainly, they, they are out there. I don't want to minimize that. But oftentimes, what we find underneath the surface of these issues is, is the difference or the disagreement about how we engage our culture. Should we engage our culture this way? Or should we do this or, or not do this? Or is it even our responsibility as a Christian community? Is it something that ought to happen simply on an organic level? Why do we have to talk about it as an organization? These are the issues that are at play. And that's the reason why there is a cultural crisis of the church. Now, of course, there has been a major uh, cultural shift in the earlier, earlier part of the 20th, uh, 20th century. You had a culture here in the United States, 100 plus years ago, 
where our culture was Christianized, which means that the values, the moral values, the way we thought about the traditional family, the way we understood sexuality or, or the dysfunctions of sexuality, the way we understood certain controversial issues, there was a, a consensus in our culture about how we were to think about those things and relate to those things. There was a consensus. There was a majority consensus. Why? Because our culture had been Christianized. Now, you are familiar with the Death of God movement, let's say Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, 100-plus years ago. Even though the Death of God movement was being introduced and all of the enlightenment and the romantic ideas of a Western philosophy was ultimately having its hands on the development of our country and our culture, you need to understand that even though that was what was being taught and conveyed, in all of the elite universities in our land, we still had a consensus when it came to these moral issues. So it was still Christianized. However, little by little, there was a basic shift in our culture. There was a cultural shift that happened. To give you some numbers, uh, in the 50s, 75% of Americans said that religion was very, very important to them personally, 75% in the 50s. Only two decades later, you had about 30% of Americans, almost half of that, saying that religion was uh, very, very important uh, to them personally. What had happened? There was a cultural shift. And so in the 70s, what ended up happening was, was that we were no longer living in a culture that was Christianized. So even though somebody might not have been a Christian, you can communicate and you can interact and you can talk about ideas and you can always find a point of reference because they had been Christianized. That we call that uh, uh, the, the, the culture of Christendom. And so preachers did not have to articulate themselves in a way that would be uh, comp uh, comprehensible to the masses. Because everyone had a point of reference. They all understood who God was, even though they were Christian. They, under they understood the language of sin. They understood uh, issues of sexual immorality. They understood uh, who Jesus was. They didn't deny his historicity. Now again, they might, be secular. They might have been secular people who did not believe in the gospel, but there was a point of reference. Those themes and ideas and realities were comprehensible uh, to a Christianized culture. But then there was a shift that happened. And the, in our culture, in our country, uh, continued to become more and more uh, secular. And so how did the church respond? Well, this was the whole what you call the fundamentalistic modernist controversy. And, and you might not be aware, but evangelicalism, as we know it, was emerged or was developed out of this controversy. People tend to equate, of course, the culture tends to equate fundamentalism and evangelicalism, but historically that's not accurate. Evangelicalism was actually a response to the fundamentalistic movement. The fundamentalistic movement was, I think uh, Robert uh, put it this way, people who are engaged in fortification, or possibly domination. So that is that, 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 that people are entrenched in their own kind of fundamentalistic way of understanding Christianity. Again, there, there are merits to having that kind of a posture, but, but there are all sorts of weaknesses. So what we found was that you had a, a church uh, that was now responding to this kind of fundamentalistic movement. That was the, the establishment of evangelicalism. So uh, some people like the original founders of Christianity today, like Carl Henry and, of course, Francis Schaeffer and, uh, and the influence of Abraham Kuyper having a Christian worldview. All of this shaped the way evangelicalism grew in our country in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And then while this was going on, there was another movement within the church, and that is called pietism. Now, I, I'm not speaking against piety, right? Piety is a wonderful thing. You know, we should engage in, in godly Christian uh, spiritual 
piety. I'm talking about pietism. And that is that, that a group of Christians, all of a sudden, and a lot of churches and leaders decided we ought to ignore culture. So let's, you know, just let the culture remain secular and let us create a parallel world where we're just going to fortify ourselves and we're going to protect ourselves. We're going to withdraw and ignore the secular culture. And that was the stance of pietism. And as a result, in response to pietism, you had some of these more modern movements within the last 30 years that were trying to respond to pietism because they realized again, hey, you know what? We need to engage culture. We can't just ignore culture. So what were some of those movements that were created out of that? Number one, you had the religious right. So you had the religious white, right, who said, you know what, if we get the appropriate people in political positions, then we're going to be able to transform culture. Okay, so that was one uh, approach in saying this is how we're going to engage culture. And then there was another movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. And they said, well, we're not going to try to do that, but we're going to try to be relevant to culture. So you had those that wanted to transform culture, and then you had others who wanted to be, who wanted to be relevant to culture. And then so after that movement, there was another response to that response to try to engage culture, which was a response to pietism. <laughs> and, and let me just pause here for a moment. Slight history lesson, but the reason why this is important, hopefully you will uh, see in a moment, that this is where we've come from. This is our history. And so there are certain blind spots. There's a certain kind of a natural inclination or posture that we might have, depending on our social location and how we've been influenced and how we view the world and view culture or view cultural engagement or the issues of contextualization depending on our background and our history. And I think it's very, very important for us to, uh, to consider this. And, um, and then now you have the younger emergent movement. And, and some of these are trends, they're very, very hard to follow because they'll, they'll kind of grow and then like, before you know it, it's gone, and you're like, what happened to that movement? Oh, it just kind of died, and that's what's happened with the emergent movement. But anyways, at one point, the emergent movement responded to the seeker-sensitive movement, say, you know what, they're not, they're not as authentic. This is when we started to use the word authentic, right? And authentic's a completely legitimate word. Let's not pick on the word authentic. But, but you know, the overuse, oh, we have to be authentic. You know, we need to be genuine uh, people. Of course we need to be genuine and authentic. But the point is that it, it was an uh, attempt to go after the boomers, some of you, right? I'm, I'm kind of right in the middle. I look a little bit, uh, I, I actually look younger, but I'm actually older than I am. But, but kind of right in between uh, that stage for many of you boomers, seeker science, the, the emergent movement, the people in their 30s and 40s, they came along and said, you know what? We need to be more spiritually authentic and more spiritually real, and we need to engage our culture with mercy and, and acts of social justice. Again, I believe a completely legitimate response to the gospel. Um, and then now you have the millennial generation. See, the, the, the emergent generation uh, grew up in, in what we will call a post-modern, post-Christian, post-church era. But now we live in a, a period of late modernity, which is post-post-culture. And so the millennials, some of us, our children who are in college, and, and, and uh, they think differently. They think differently. They have different categories, right? I was, I was speaking with a, another a boomer elder of mine, and, and, and we were going back and forth because he, he's a, a VP of some firm, but his CEO is a millennial. Okay? Pretty smart. That's why he's a CEO, but... And uh, we're just kind of poking fun, uh, and not at him directly, uh, but we just said, you know, millennials, sometimes it's very, very hard for them to kind of differentiate between that which is real and that which is, which is uh, kind of not real, right? That's, that's kind of the, the, world, the world of Instagram, you know, that's kind of, a, kind of not the real world, but that's kind of the world that we might potentially want to, uh, to live in. But the point here is, is that, that when you think about millennials, as much as we can, you know, poke fun and so on, they are a generation that is engaged uh, in more service and acts of mercy than any other generation. So talk about volunteering their time. 
Boomers, you don't even come close to what the millennials are willing to do. So when we say, we criticize falsely by saying, oh, millennials, you know, they, whatever we want to say about them, they don't work as hard, they're not like my generation, so on and so forth, well, that's not necessarily true. Maybe some, but you can always find some in every generation. But the point here is it's not, again, not so much about saying, well, this tradition or this generation or this era is superior or better than another era. Because the, 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 uh, the preceding era said that about the, the, the following era every single time. It's not as though we have a monopoly on, on, on living this beautiful uh, uh, life because we, we came from a particular uh, period in history. Uh, this is what James Hunter says uh, in his book, To Change the World. He says, even if 80% of the population of a country uh, are Christian believers, they will have almost no cultural influence if Christians do not live in cultural centers and work in culture forming a foraging field such as uh, academia, publishing, media, entertainment, and the arts. We will not have any influence at all or impact. Now, again, I understand some of you saying, well, why do we have to try to have influence or impact on the culture? So we're still working through that with uh, some of you. Um, I want to shift here now as we kind of look at the cultural crisis of, of how people have, the church has responded differently. I want us to look at the dangers of a reductionistic definition of the gospel. And I think this is the reason why we have uh, so many, uh, we've had different responses to this. Um, Simon Gathercold, who is a well-known Cambridge uh, New Testament scholar, Cambridge, the, the other Cambridge, not my Cambridge next to Boston, um, the, the original Cambridge in England, um, he says that there are three non-negotiable essential ingredients that make up the gospel. So if we were to do a word study, look up gospel, or even in the Greek, we look that up uh, in the concordance or, or through our, our Bible software, and we look that word up, essentially means these three things. You can find this in Paul's letters, and you can find this in the synoptic gospels. Number one, it talks about uh, the, mess the, the promised messianic king who is the son of God who had to come to earth as a servant. Okay, so that's the first essential ingredient of the gospel. The second uh, is this. By his death and resurrection, Jesus atoned for our sin and secured our justification by grace and not our works. And thirdly, on the cross, Jesus broke the dominion of sin and evil over us. And at his return, he will complete what he began by the renewal of the entire material creation and the resurrection of the body. So, I mean, there's no surprise there. The, the comprehensive biblical gospel includes his coming, his dying, his rising. Or we like to say his life death and resurrection, or his incarnation, atonement, and resurrection, or Christmas, Good Friday, Easter. These are the three essential ingredients that make up the biblical gospel. But, but here's, the, here's the problem. The danger is when we reduce the gospel to just one piece. It's overly reductionistic. Rather than looking at it comprehensively and recognizing the thickness and the depth of the biblical gospel, we just take out a thin layer because we only highlight one element or piece of the gospel. Let me, let me see if I can say it another way. The gospel is news rather than mere ethical instruction. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is something that has already been accomplished on our behalf, and we receive it by faith. It's news. So I don't know if you've heard this saying. Uh, it's not uh, attributed to Francis of Assisi. There are many other things that he said that were not correct, but this is not one of them. But this is what this saying says. It says that preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. Have you heard that phrase? That is so biblically uh, inconsistent and wrong. There's no other way for you to preach the gospel unless you use words. 
So, so that is why there's another form of this word here in the Greek, gospel, which is translated as uh, proclaiming the gospel or preaching the gospel or gospelizing. So, so I can't just come up here and, and to do some sort of a, a dance or as, as much as we appreciate the arts or to, or to go out with a group and, and to, to help the poor as important as that is. That's not the gospel. Now, is it important and necessary for us to engage in those things? Of course. So, the, so here it is. You need to differentiate the difference between the gospel and the results of the gospel. The results of the gospel, again, helping the poor, engaging your culture, integrating faith and work, uh, evan- whatever these things might be, evangelizing, Christian education, discipleship, worship, Right? All of these wonderful, these are the results of the gospel. But that in and of itself is not the gospel itself because the gospel is news, not mere ethical instruction. It is something that has happened apart from us and that event, that historical news has now has to be proclaimed and announced. Uh, I lived in the United Kingdom. I've met a fellow, a Scottish uh, brother here. Uh, we lived in, in St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, and um, and uh, there were a lot of uh, different things uh, that we learned uh, when we were there. And uh, right after we came back from Scotland, my uh, middle daughter was probably around um, about five or six or something like that. And we moved into the city of Boston before planting the church. And we were... Um, uh, on our way up to school, it was my responsibility that morning to, to transport them up to school. They attended a small Christian school about 25 miles north of Boston. And we were late, right? I miscalculated, and, and so we were late. And then so I was bringing up my uh, elder daughter and then our, our middle one who was about six. And uh, she was getting really anxious, and she said, Daddy, hurry up, hurry up, get us there. And, uh, and I said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do my best. And the 30 seconds later, she, she reminded me again, Dad, I need to get to school on time. I said, all right, all right. And then I said, what's the problem? Why are you getting so worked up about it? I said, well, if I get three tardies, if I'm late to school three times, then, then I get detention and I need to come in on Saturday. And I get punished because I got three tardies. I said, oh, wow, I'm paying tuition to this school and they're giving detention to a kindergartner? So anyways, as I was kind of having bad thoughts in my heart, um, she interrupted me and she's always had a sense of justice. And this is what she said to me. She said, uh, actually, she still, still had a Scottish accent. She said, Daddy, if it's your fault for getting me there late, why should I get punished? And so what did I do? I used that, the remaining 10, 12 minutes to give her a lesson on federal headship, <laughs> on, 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 on corporate representation. I said, honey, I am the corporate representative and the federal head for the Umian dynasty. And so when I do something great, all of you get blessed. But when I screw up, then, you know, unfortunately, you need to pay the consequences and face the curse or punishment or, or whatever. And I asked her, I said, do you know of a federal head or a corporate representative, like a biblical character in scripture like that? And she said, Adam? I said, good. Adam was a federal head. He represented all of humanity. So when he disobeyed God's law and commandment, and and then he fell, and we all fell along with him as his human progeny. And I said, do you know of another federal head, another corporate representative in redemptive history in the Bible, kind of like Adam? And she said, Jesus? I said, yes. I said, Jesus was another. He was a second Adam. He came to fulfill that which the first Adam failed to do. So the first Adam failed to to fulfill the requirements of what he was called to do as an image bearer of God. But the second Adam, the the federal head, he came to fulfill that which the first Adam failed to do. And and through his own performance and obedience, he he communicates or he imputes his righteousness into our account. It's credited to us. It's nothing that we've done. We simply receive it by faith. 
And faith in and of itself is a gift, according to Ephesians 2, uh, 7 and 8. Not just grace, but faith. That's also a gift, too. And so, again, the gospel is news, not mere ethical instruction. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But secondly, the gospel uh, is grace to the weak rather than power to the strong. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, these are different terms that are used. So this will be something like uh, the grace pattern stories in the Bible. That God demonstrates grace to the weak and not power to the strong, right? He always speaks against the proud. You know, he will humble the proud. He will humiliate the, the proud, but he will exalt the humble. Right? This is kind of what we see. God opposes those who are haughty, but he, he is attracted to those uh, who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Right? This is what we find in, in the scriptures. And it's like when God chooses the second son over the first son. Not always. He chooses Abel over Cain. He chooses uh, Abraham over Isaac. He chooses, uh, did I say Abraham over, Abraham over uh, what's the other guy? Oh yeah, Ishmael. And, and he chooses uh, 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 Jacob over Esau, David over Eliab. I mean, this is, this is the way God operates oftentimes. He's very... He's kind of unpredictable, although he's somewhat cons consistent when he does this kind of changing of the, 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 the primogenitor uh, in terms of the inheritance coming down to the first son. So gospel is grace to the weak and not power to the strong. And here's a perfect example of this, if you give me like seven minutes on this one here. Um, in Genesis 29, Genesis 29, it's an obscure passage. You probably won't know it very well. It's a passage about Leah. Okay, we, we kind of know Leah, but Leah's not like Rachel. Rachel's the, she's the beautiful one, right? The one that Jacob loved. And so Jacob, if you know the second part of uh, the book of Genesis, is primarily about Jacob. It's about, uh, um, you know, even Joseph's life from Genesis 39 all the way to 50 or so. It's, it's really Joseph's life's about Jacob's life. So it's about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what we find with Jacob is that he was some, someone who was running away from God, running away from his father, right, because he lied to him and deceived him. He was running away from his brother, uh, Esau, because he stole his birthright. Uh, and the only one who loved him, his mother, uh, Rebecca, she dies on him, not her fault, but... But, you know, so this guy's a lonely guy just kind of running away from himself, running away from everyone. And, and finally, he, he sets his eyes on this beautiful woman by the name of Rachel. So he goes to the father, Laban, who's a shifty character, and says, hey, can you kind of give me your daughter's hand in marriage? And he's, oh, but you're going to have to serve me and you know, whatever. And seven years he served. And after that, I promise I will give you my daughter to be your wife. And here's a romantic line. It said, the seven years seemed like but a few days to Jacob. How romantic is that? Huh? <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you know what happened after seven years, you know, uh, uh, when he thought he was going to, uh, he was going to uh, receive Rachel as his wife. Laban kind of messes with him again. And they say, oh, no, you got to serve me for more years. And then all that. So after all those years, he finally is at a point where he's going to consummate his relationship physically with his wife. Rachel, and of course, these are the days before electricity, electricity, right? And so he had a little bit too much to drink, and he went into his quarters, and, and Laban sent his older daughter, Leah, into the bedroom quarters rather than Rachel. And so Jacob didn't know that. He consummates the relationship. He wakes up in the morning, and, 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 and these are the words that when Jacob realized this, he said, and behold, it was Leah. So you need to know this. Now, the Bible says in the Hebrew that Jacob was, I mean, um, no, what's her name? Now, Rachel was very, very beautiful, right? The uh, body type and kind of her aesthetic features. She was just a beautiful, beautiful woman. And this is what it says about her older sister, Leah. She had weak eyes. Weak eyes. So, has some ophthalmological issue? I mean, 
she couldn't, she couldn't go to Asia Minor and, and pick up some good ISAV or something like that. I mean, and so Jacob says, oh, I, 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 I cannot engage in a relationship with somebody who's got uh, ophthalmological issues. No. <laughs> I mean, no, this is just kind of a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Semitic device. It's a, it's a euphemism for saying that she was very ugly. Think about Leah. Think about her life. Every time a suitor would come to the household of Laban and say, hey, you know, can I have your daughter in marriage? Oh, I've got a daughter for you. Oh, not the one with weak eyes. No, the one who has a 20-20 vision. Every time a suitor would come, she's rejected by her father, who wants to send the, there's an expression in Eastern culture, it's got to get the old car out first before the new car can come into the garage. Okay? So got to get the old one out. If, 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 you, if you let the new car out first, then the old car is going to seem more old. And the only ones who will appreciate that will be archaeologists. And so got to get them out. And so she, every time a suitor would come, rejected by the father, rejected by the suitor, rejected all the time, rejected by the beauty of her younger sister. There's one of my favorite Shakespearean uh, 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 characters is Iago of Cassio, right? you know, in Othello. And this is what he says, this one-liner. He says, he hath the beauty daily that makes me ugly. In other words, he has a beauty that uglifies me. Now, this is a large enough group where I know that some of you grew up where you had that older brother who just was an amazing athlete. Everyone loved him. Everyone admired him. And you were the slightly athletically challenged one. I know it's hard to admit here in Kentucky, but, you know. He had aspirations of playing in the Rupp Arena, and you just played intramural sports uh, with your other athletic, athletically challenged friends. So you joined the chess team. Um, but some of you still have these insecurities, right? Some of you had older sisters who always dated the, the cute guys. Or you had a brother or a sister uh, whom your parents praised all the time because they just were so, so effortlessly uh, doing well in school. Whereas for you, you know, you're working hard and just barely getting a B plus. So I understand that some of you have that kind of baggage. And all your life you're trying to... to Prove and perform to the ob observing world. You know what? I'm actually prettier. I'm actually more significant. I'm actually more competent than I appear. He hath a beauty daily that makes me ugly. This was the life of Leah. And so now Jacob is her husband, and then his other wife is your prettier younger sister. You don't have time to get into the, the dysfunctions of that, that household. But. And so he, she knows that her husband, Jacob, loves her younger, prettier sister more. So in an ancient world, how are you going to try to gain value? Again, I'm not saying that this was the right approach, but this is what they did in the ancient world. You needed to, you needed to populate your family by having a lot of children, especially sons. Again, I'm, I'm somebody who has three daughters, right? That shouldn't have been the case, but that's what it was back then. Sons were more valuable than, than daughters, unfortunately. That was wrong, but anyways. So, so she, she was very fertile, and Rachel was barren. So she started to get pregnant and have all these children. In the beginning, they were all sons. So she had the first one. She named him Reuben. Said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. For now my husband will love me. And then she named the second one Simeon. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me uh, uh, this son. I'll name him Simeon. She had the third one and she named him Levi. 
because she said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. So the first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, the, the, the meaning of their names all were associated, was associated with either the child or the husband until the fourth son. She named him Judah, which means I will praise the Lord. Now what happened? I mean, something happened. The text does not say. But you know what we find about Judah? Find out about Judah? We find Judah in the promise that's given by Jacob to all of his sons. And Judah, it says that the scepter will, in a kind of a sign of royalty, will come upon the son in Judah. In Genesis 49, and that there will be a, a picture of, of the colt or the donkey that is associated with his royalty. That text is in the background of Zechariah 9, which prophesies about the Messiah to come when he will be riding on a donkey. And Zechariah 9 is in the background of John chapter 12, which is a reference to the triumphal entry of Jesus who comes riding on a donkey because he's fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah about the Messiah, which was a, a prophecy explaining the blessing that was given to Judah, who was the son of Leah. What does this mean? This means that even though Leah was who she was and she seemed extremely weak, she ultimately ended up becoming the mother of the Messiah. How incredible is that? It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter how weak and feeble and frail and, and how much of a failure you think you are. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter if you've had bad breaks or you've had a prettier sister or you've been rejected so many times in your life. It doesn't matter what situation you are in because the gospel is about giving grace to the weak and not power to the strong. This is the way God operates. And not only that, the gospel is of faith rather than merit or performance. Because of time, I, I won't be able to expand on that. But this is what I want to say. I can say it another way. The gospel is an upside-down kingdom. God emptied himself of his glory. Grace to the weak. A complete reversal of all the values of the world. It's also, the gospel is an inside-out kingdom. God substituted himself for us, regenerated our hearts. It is a forward-back kingdom where it talks about how he's going to save us not only from the penalty of sin, but also the presence of sin at the very end. And he will bring a new creation, a material world cleansed of all the brokenness and the fallenness. And he has called us to be culture makers, to renew all the resources and the raw ingredients that we have in our world, not in a triumphalistic way by taking over culture, like being culture take, uh, taking over culture, or being overly pessimistic and withdrawing from our society. It is having this beautiful element of the resurrection piece of the gospel, recognizing that there's already the already, but there's also the not yet. Already we have victory. We are more than conquerors, Romans chapter 8. That we already have victory, Philippians chapter 3. We have victory in Christ. We have been resurrected, but there will, we're still encased in this sinful body. And the not yet, the consummation, the full restoration has yet to come. And that is the tension that we live in, in our society as Christians and as a church. So if you have an over-realized view of the already, then you're going to be overly triumphalistic. And also that means that you're going to have a low view of sin. It will lead you to easy believism. On the other hand, if you have an over-realized view of the not yet, then you're going to have a low view of grace, and you're going to be cynical, and it'll lead to legalism. That is why the Bible gives us a beautiful tension, a balance between the already aspects of the resurrection of the gospel of the person of Jesus Christ and the not yetness of how everything will be made new at the very end. So we're living between these two poles of the already and not yet. And so it is part of our responsibility to be able to, to steward all of the raw ingredients and the resources to make things new. That's also a responsibility that we have. However, 
If you have a reductionistic view of the gospel, that's all you're about, then you're always just about social justice and you're all about, uh, about uh, acts of mercy and you don't have any concern about the, the, the primacy and the priority of the inner life. However, if you are only focusing on a reductionistic view of one of the other pieces of, of the fact that the, the gospel is an inside-out kingdom and about conversion and about spirituality and about piety, then guess what? Then you will never have concern for the poor. You see how this works? The way you understand the gospel shapes the way that you're going to engage your culture. If you have a if you have a reduced definition, if you only take one strand out of the three essential non-negotiable ingredients of his coming, his dying, and his rising, you only take one piece out, then you say, hey, you know, it's all about the incarnation. It's about a Galilean peasant who was hip and he wanted to hang out with people who were, who were marginalized. Hey, that's the kind of person I want to follow. Oh, what about being converted and, and, and abandoning all of these other issues about, about immorality? Oh, no, those things aren't that important. We need to just address, the, uh, uh, address the, the injustice of social oppression. You see how this works? But on the other hand, again, if you have a reduced understanding of just the, the spiritual parts of the gospel, then you're not going to be concerned about the integration of faith and work. You're just going to say, all we have to do when we engage our culture is to evangelize. And again, I'm not minimizing evangelism. We need to evangelize, and we'll talk about how to do that well. That is why we need to, we need to engage uh, and have a definition of the gospel that is very, very robust. And, and lastly, I'm sure I'm almost out of time if I'm not out already, is the symbolic capital of cities. Symbolic capital of cities. I, I do need to say a few things about this because I need to say this before I go on to the other talks. Um, why do cities matter? And I don't have time to define for you exactly what I mean by cities, right? It's kind of, you can be talking about center city, the center city of city, or the inner city, or you can be talking about the metro area, or now we talk about kind of mega regions. Cities are important because of the trend of, urb trend of urbanization and the reality of globalization. That the importance of the city to world culture has increased exponentially. So Lexington isn't is an urban center. It's not like your typical kind of European uh, urban center, which is there's a kind of a, a center city with a highly a densely populated region, right? But it's still a city. You probably take great pride in the fact that Lexington, not Louisville, that's how we pronounce it in the East, um, is probably the cultural center of the whole state of Kentucky. Right? Or at least you would like to believe so. I, I don't know. That's an intramural discussion. Um, but that's from, what, that's from what I'm hearing, you know, uh, that, that you have the University of Kentucky here, right? You have, so, um, and so in 1950, New York City was the only city in the world that had a population over 10 million people. Today, we have 23 megacities over 10 million. And in 2035, we'll have 36. More than 5.5 million people migrate into cities every month. That's the size of a San Francisco every month. China's urban population in 18 years will be 350 million. Just to provide perspective, the population of our country is about 315 or 16, something like that. In the year 1800, less than 2% of the world's population lived in urban centers. 1900, 14%. And today, it's about 53%. In 2050, it will be 75%. Now again, some of you are saying, oh, here he goes with the city propaganda. He's trying to say that ex-urban, rural, countryside, suburban areas are unimportant. I didn't say that. No, you, you're thinking that. <laughs> I'm just saying that this is a reality of urbanization. And if we as a church and as a community, we want to be able to engage our culture, we need to live and work and operate and engage the culture. And the culture is shaped in urban centers. Give me, give me a town, a, a nice suburban town that's about 10, 15 minutes away from here. Hmm? Georgetown. Georgetown? Okay. 
So I'm sure it's a nice town, and, and I'm sure some of you live in that town. Georgetown's not going to influence Lexington. Lexington will influence Georgetown. Right? And so, again, this is not to say, oh, okay, so you're saying the people who live in the urban centers, especially you who's, who's biased, who's from the East, you know, the most selective elite schools that are in the East, and of course you're going to brag that Boston has all that too, and so therefore that we're more valuable. No, that's not my point. My point is, is that we need to understand that's where culture is shaped. As the city goes, so goes the wider culture. It doesn't happen in any other way. And so if we want to have deep, impact to shape and to influence our culture, we have to do what Hunter suggested. We can't live in a parallel world. We can't fortify ourselves. We can't accommodate ourselves either. And we cannot dominate or even attempt to dominate. We can't do that. It's about seeking the welfare of the city, moving in, settling down. Protecting, protecting ourselves from all of the secular worldly influences, but at the same time living in it and loving our neighbors and knowing how we can obey the great commandment. Not only thinking about the great commission. They're both important. Let me, let me uh, just give one anecdote and then I can kind of follow up with it a little bit uh, later. Um, you know, why... Uh, why are cities important? Because our world is no longer animated by the manufacturing of goods. It is now propelled by ideas. Do you know what the difference between Apple and Samsung is? Right, my ethnicity is Korean. So I could be biased and say, hey, Samsung, the best smartphone that's out there, except for all that uh, you know, battery issues and all that. But, but it's, it's, it's the best. It's the best-selling smartphone in the world, which is true. But it's not Apple. It's not the iPhone. Because the iPhone is about the propulsion of an idea. Samsung is just about a product. You know, Thomas Friedman, in his book many years ago, best-selling book, wrote, The World is Flat. His conclusions were way off. The most respected urbanists like Ed Glazer out of Harvard and uh, Richard Florida out of Toronto and Joel Kotkin, they all realized that we don't live in a flat world, we live in a spiky world. Think about it. As according to Freeman, if people could just live out somewhere in a remote place in Montana, I'm sure it's a beautiful place, fly fishing from what I hear. I'm not a fisher, but fly fishing and all that, and, and you can kind of telecommunicate with someone else on the other side of the globe. No human interaction, some of you would prefer that, and just kind of do your work because you're so skilled and competent in doing that. And of course we can do that because of globalization and technology and innovation. However, if that were the case, then why are there 5.5 million people migrating into cities every month? Why? Because what cities will do is that city, cities uh, will always be forgers of culture. Do you remember, uh, what's her name, Elisa Myers or whatever? Uh, she's, she's, she used to be the CEO of Yahoo, right? But she's no longer. Um, but anyways, I, I applauded her when she said, you know what? People should all come into the office. And we had a debate among our staff members and probably the ones who wanted to work remotely from, from home. I said, no into the office. Why? Because when you're in close proximity with other people who are different than you and who are like you, then it's going to challenge you. And that's what culture, that's what cities do. They are foragers of culture in that way. It, it puts us together with unique numbers of people who are unlike us. Of course, this audience is pretty much homogeneous in terms of uh, its racial makeup. But cities, more than other ex-urban neighborhoods, you have a mix of races, and that's a good thing. And so this might be good for your sanctification. Go to the registry of motor vehicles regularly. Right? I know you can do some things online, but it's good for your sanctification. Why? Because you go there, everyone gets a number, right? You got to just sit there, and you're around people who are very different than you racially. They talk to their children differently, and you're like, hey, you know, they smell differently because they eat different food, and 
That's a really beautiful, and, and you're going to realize this, that you have all sorts of cultural customs and preferences. And when you absolutize your cultural customs and preferences, when you absolutize them, then it becomes cultural prejudice. And so what cities will do, cities bring people who are different, not just racially, but just from different walks of life. And, and, and you, all of a sudden, you're challenged to think, you know, the way I do it is not always the best way. This will, this will be my final illustration. I'll end with this. Um, we have many interracial marriages at our church, and I don't do a lot of weddings anymore, but when I used to, just imagine one wedding where you have one person who is from a non-Western uh, culture and another one who's a, a typical uh, American. And, uh, and the wedding starts at 1 in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon. And it's about 12.55, and this entire side here, the friends and the family members of this American, let's say the groom, they're all there sitting and waiting. They've been there for like 15 minutes. And there's like barely anyone over here on this side of this non-Western uh, uh, individual. And then, you know, I'm getting a little nervous because I, I said promptly at 1, 1 p.m. I'm, I'm bicultural, but when it comes to these things, I'm an, I'm an American. Not only a regular American, but I am an uptight northeastern urban dweller from Boston. I'm not only uptight about time, I'm uptight about everything. Just a cranky person. That's what urban people are. We're just cranky. We're just... And so, so it's 12.55, and, and it's like there's no one there. And then about 1.15, they start strolling in. They're all happy. They want to give everyone a hug. And the people over here, they've got their arms folded, they're kind of looking over that way and saying, do you not know it's rude for you to come late to a wedding? We've been waiting for half an hour. I mean, they're thinking that some people verbalize it. We, we, we tell those people to leave. But, I mean, that's what we're thinking in our minds. See, it's just a different view of time. Different cultures have different views of time. But when we take a cultural custom and we absolutize it, it becomes cultural prejudice. And all of a sudden, we end up judging people across the aisle, looking at them the other way. There's no civility anymore. Look at John Inazu's book, uh, a law professor from Washington University, a great book, uh, Confident Pluralism. No civility anymore. Never mind getting into politics, right? I mean, no civility at all. We can't have meaningful discourse in the public square. Why? Because we're not humble enough. We don't listen. We, we, we think that the way we think. And again, this is what cities are good for. Cities will put us in situations that will forge culture by putting us close to people who are different than we are. Have the willingness to learn. Younger people have the willingness to learn from older people. Older people, yes, have the willingness to learn from younger people, even your own children. Those of you who are, who are white have the willingness to learn from other minority groups. And those minority groups, don't be so angry. And, and I, I understand some of your history might be terrible, but, but have the willingness to listen and talk. And this is what living in Christian community does in a city allows us to be able to do that rather than focusing too much on all the differences. So cities are foragers of culture. And so don't dismiss the city. Don't hate your city. Don't hate culture. Don't hate your community. But the gospel is calling all of us to be able to engage it in robust ways that are healthy for us and for the common good. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord, teach us uh, not to have a reductionistic view of the gospel um, so that we just highlight few things but not the whole comprehensive whole. Lord, help us to also to be able to engage a culture uh, in meaningful and loving and gracious ways uh, that we will be mindful of uh, our history, mindful of our blind spots. And I also pray that we might be able to know that there is great symbolic capital uh, in cities. Cities are the ones that forge culture. And therefore, we ought to have a view of it uh, that is, that is uh, critical on the one hand, 
recognizing all the worldliness and all of the secular aspects of it, but on the other hand, recognizing uh, that it's something that you've created and that we ought to have a desire as we look at the peace of the gospel of the resurrection, that we would be able to know that ultimately you will renew all things and that we ought to engage in activity that we renew of the world that we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.